Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Soho Shortwave, a monthly podcast from Soho Radio, giving you a taste of the best content we produce every month. Soho Radio is an online radio station broadcasting from the heart of Soho, London. We have a wide range of talents and tastes across our music and culture channels. You're always bound to hear something new when you tune in. On this episode of Soho Shortwave, we hear from Helfetica, Soul from Ragspace Time, Gazetta della Soho and Byzantio with Silverstream. Hi, so I'm Byzantia Harlow, a visual artist, and I have a show on Soho Radio's Culture Channel, which airs uh, once a month on a Monday at 6pm, and it's called The Silver Stream. The Silver Stream is a journey through ideas, um, and it's always in collaboration with invited guests. Um, And this is usually artists or people who work within the visual art field. Um, But I try to also like get people who may have some kind of audio element or like musical collaboration as part of their visual art practice. So it's never really just like a straight interview format. It's more like taking some key concerns in their practice and like investigating this and like turning it into a kind of wider exploration and then the most recent episode was in collaboration with a visual artist called Rebecca Malloy um, who also has a sort of side project um, which is a collaboration with a musician called Ollie Chapman. Rebecca makes performance painting and sculpture as a way to explore what it means to be in a body, um, our experience of ourselves and each other and the world around us and she kind of plays with the dynamics of social gatherings and staging events and all these things and it's interesting because Rebecca used to make very performative work um, but then she's been limited recently by like a chronic illness and that's why she's begun making a different sort of work and this is where this kind of musical collaboration comes into it so it's a really great um, episode and you'll be able to hear a sort of 10 minute extract from that next so yeah please do have a listen to the silver stream and uh, yeah that's really all I can say. I think there's something really interesting here about like audience participation, which I think is a general thread to your work. So something about like jarring the expected experience and it reminds me of discourse genres and subverting expected interactions with artworks themselves, but also like the viewing of them or the presentation of an artwork. So I'm like really interested in those genres and like etiquettes and modes. For example, we all put on like a telephone voice instinctively. People say my voice is different when I'm on the radio. We enter spaces to view artworks or arrive at a party environment and we do so with like a really similarly prescriptive set of roles that we play out that we all kind of expect of each other in a way and they're like codified and generally agreed upon um, expectations and postures Mm -hmm. and I feel like your work and ethos around it is subverting and colliding such genres and discourses so in the cactus dance you present the lap dance as a performance subverting the roles of passive and active for the viewer and complicating their role as participant and then at the moment where they become used to that dynamic you flip it again and it becomes Mm. a party (laughs) and you offer this kind of delayed gratification as a payoff or release and like in other works we're going to hear about you create a, a kind of party environment however this is like a solo party that you enact which the audience are invited to participate in but a really removed distance via their observation 
So it kind of comes back to this idea we mentioned of control and reclamation of safe space because you're very much in charge. Mm. And like I really resonate with your practice and the research element, entering a world that interests you and then presenting it through a different lens, real enough to be recognisable but sort of slightly skewed. And my own practice revolves around really blurry boundaries of reality and fiction, exploring knockoffs, veneers of truth, recollection and reenactment. And like recently, I began a, re a YouTube project, Lunar Water Tarot, as a continuation of the show I mentioned before. And I have an alter ego or persona Alaris, who, and I kind of investigate intersections between true experience, constructed encounter, and embellished recollection. So I worked as a professional tarot reader like 12 years ago and a burlesque performer. And I draw on like all of these different things to create these like genuine divinations that are laced with fictitious narratives so I had loads of personal readings done from YouTube like YouTube star tarot readers <laughs> and then I like recreate elements of them but I do real like tarot readings with my deck as well and it's like all this mishmash of like reality and construct and it's it's interesting because I'm walking this tightrope across like parody and sincerity and myself and other and lunar water tarot exists on youtube amongst all the other online readings but my videos kind of jar and they highlight how constructed the whole thing is because online fortune telling is a world of perfect fake nails comforting vocal tones big smiles and like solidarity but with undertones of female sexuality and the videos promise empowerment all the while trapping the viewer in this like endless loop of how does he feel playlist watching until they get the right answer or the answer they want to hear trust me I've done it for hours <laughs> like, it's the perfect mix of spiritual advice self-care amateur psychoanalysis and answers and it's like a sickly sweet trap for the heartbroken mm. and I sound like I'm criticizing it but even if I am I found it very like comforting yeah. <laughs> um and although my project pastiches all of this, some of like the internet viewers and other online tarot readers, and even those that know my art practice well have taken the videos seriously. And to those that know me, this is because I'm playing a version of myself, but to an extreme. Um, for those that don't, it's because the videos are delivered in the language of the genre I'm investigating and they do contain some genuine moments of divination. Like I'll do random card pulls and they always back up the narrative that I've pre-planned, which is really weird. Not weird, I believe in those things. Um, <laughs> but it's perfect because in my work, the whole thing is like whether or not something is real or constructed, it's still possible to find resonance within it. So it's about faith and belief. And like to the cynic, the video will appear cynical. To the believer, it's possible to find either truth or disillusionment. But whatever is found is like a reflection of the viewer's stance. They'll see what they're looking for. So some people will see your dance and be like, oh, how can she do that? It's so indecent. Or they'll see it as empowering. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. like a mirror. Artworks are like a mirror for mm, what yeah. is going on with people. Um, yeah, and I feel like with all online tarot readings, it's like if the message resonates, it's only because the viewer kind of already knew it within their subconscious anyway. So I feel like you're like really touching on similar concerns as well with this like enactment, um, as well as playing with the potential for disillusionment and this kind of delayed gratification that we were talking about um, within a work of yours, Becca Blue, which I'd love you to speak about now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Becca Blue is this performance piece where I sing very intimately to strangers, but in a large cupboard. And uh, here's a description from the audience <laughs> perspective. <laughs> Uh, there's a female bouncer dressed head to toe in black with dark black tarts and glasses. She guards a glittered gold door, informing me that there's a performance inside and that I'd need to queue for entry. I'm let in after the bouncer checks the performer is ready. 
Inside there is a shag pile carpet, satin green drapes, disco lights and a karaoke setup. Behind the mic stands a woman in a blonde wig and a blue velvet catsuit. She wears fake blue nails and false eyelashes. It is just me and her in the cupboard. She gestures for me to sit down. She stands over me and tells me in the mic that she's Becca Blue and that she'll be performing for me tonight. She presses play on a backing track and sings to me. Um, so the next track is the only recording from the performance and it's me covering, or Becca Blue covering, an Adele song called Make You Feel My Love. really liked what you said earlier about faith and belief um so in order for the audience members to feel like i'm genuinely singing a song to them and that they matter in this interaction they really need, do need to believe that i am singing to them and that i'm feeling the emotions that the songs are expressing yeah, but you it sounds like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know just listening back to that i was like oh god yeah i really felt that, <laughs> that moment. it's quite nice to listen to it again um, so I feel that in order for the audience to be convinced by this and to feel like there's an exchange of emotion, it partly comes from how I interact and sing to them, but also the reality which uh, they step into once they get inside the cupboard. So it all adds to this strangely absurd experience, but hopefully a genuine and real one at the same time. Um, I think this work also plays on this idea of the private versus public. So yeah. it reminds me of when you're a teenager, or even now, for some of us, <laughs> that we play make-believe and sing to ourselves in front of a mirror with a hairbrush. Yes. And there's this idea that when you're singing to yourself in the mirror, you're the only an audience member, so you feel free to perform however you want. But there's this, at the same time, there's like a sort of fantasy of the other, of being watched mm. as you look back at yourself. Like when I'm in my makeup at home waiting for my life. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the same. Yeah, there's a play out of a fantasy. Yes. Exactly. So I guess that in my performances of like the Cactus Dance and Becca Blue, I'm playing out the idea of what we keep for ourselves, but then also what we share for others. Mm. And using the performances as a way to kind of question this idea of what is private. Mm. And I think this is, uh, is important as it adds an element of uncomfortableness to the performances as you're not really sure whether you're actually supposed to be watching and kind of viewing this private moment. Yeah. Um, or indeed whether you're supposed to participate. Did people, like, join in? <laughs> uh, one, yeah, like, I remember one girl singing with me and she was like, it was a bit more of an upbeat song, I can't really remember what it was, but she yeah. did sing with me. I had one girl, like, crying. Aww. Yeah, it was... It was yeah, people responded differently to also how uncomfortable and awkward they felt. And you pick and tracks that you usually sing, would choose and yeah, like sing classic, yourself in karaoke. Classic karaoke yeah. tunes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think a strong part of my practice is this idea that I create these spaces using installations, painting, sculpture, and performance, and then I can like assign like meaning to that space, objects, and actions, which allows for then this narrative or interactions and experiences. So I like the idea of being the creator of this rather than the user as well. Yeah, and it's interesting that you turn the dynamic of karaoke mm. on its head. So like usually karaoke is all about audience participation. In traditional karaoke, the audience members then become interchangeable with the performers. So they're like passive and active. They 
sing the song and then they watch people sing and they make a conscious decision to be part of the action you know they're the entertainer and the audience so it's mm. kind of this like wish fulfillment this participatory act which implicates the audience as they're inseparable from the source and also karaoke is in itself transmutative and reflects the day-to-day -day changes of culture so like tammy Wynette can be sung in many ways and each time it's sung it has an echo of the truth you know um <laughs> and in this kind of murky mire of precedence and the bula bays we're going to submerge ourselves in or we do as artists or as people it's like our creative cornucopia it's like to borrow a phrase from dave hickey i feel we're like sort of stretching our toes downward to find a new bottom from which we might push mm. off so we're like in this i feel like as artists we're like dumpster diving all the time <laughs> there's yeah. like nothing new you're always referencing and cultural or yeah. art historical things you know and karaoke is that so it's a good metaphor for artworks Hi, I'm Suleg, musician, composer and creator of Tubla Works. You'll hear me playing a mix of relaxing and uplifting music of the subcontinent from classical sitar and flute to creative fusion with intricate tabla beats as well as the colourful and rich music of India's folk tradition. I'm intrigued by the unique journeys of other artists and enjoy sharing them through live studio interviews. On my last show, a fabulous tabla player here in Chate talked about how he was inspired to build a music festival in India, which has gone on to become both successful and popular. My show happens on the last Wednesday of every month at 8am and it's appropriately called Rag Space Time. Don't forget to listen in. A very good morning to everyone. This is Sulek Ruparel on Rag Space Time and you're listening to the absolutely amazing... Kishori Amonko, this is Rag Hanswani. And actually, I just have to tell everyone out there, this is probably my favorite classical track of all time. The voice is absolutely sublime on this track, and the Rag is beautiful, it's presented so beautifully. So just enjoy this track for uh, another minute or so. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Hiran Chate is with me this morning, wonderful tabla player and creator of Samraga Festival. Welcome to Rag Space Time, Hiran. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, morning, Selek. And, uh, you know, I think uh, everyone wants to really hear, and especially myself, is uh, the story about um, how you began playing tabla. Every musician has a story about how they began playing. Um, what, was your, what was your particular inspiration when you first started playing tabla, Hiran? Uh, I think uh, before I talk about uh, the inspiration, I think uh, I think before I was born, I think my father decided that I have to play tabla. And uh, when I was born, my father's <laughs> teacher came to our house after two weeks and he gave me tabla as a present. And he said to my father that he'll be a tabla player one day. And since then, when I was like two weeks old, my father had decided I was going to be a musician. <laughs> How do you think tabla can enhance 
world music going forward. Where, where do you see Tabla sitting? I mean, I know there have been some great maestros. If you talked about Tabla 50 years ago, you'll be talking about this abstract instrument uh, that uh, has amazing solo repertoire, but then it's just restricted to playing time cycles when it was you know, being played with other Indian classical musical instruments. But Tabla has come such a long way in the last 50 years. Where do you see the, the future of tabla uh, and, and where do you see it in the present? And, and do, you, do you see it mainly being used in light music, which is a sort of Bollywood and, and rhythm music, or do you still see that there, there's an appetite for learning classical as well? Uh, I think tabla has, has grown tremendously in the last um, 50 years, I believe. Um, the tradition is like very old, maybe 300, 400 years old tradition. But now, in the last 50 years, there's a lot of work has been done in the field of tabla. And you look at what Ustad Zakir Hussain has done. He's put tabla on a global map. And like I've heard tabla uh, samples in so many Hollywood films, you know. Mm-hmm. And the texture of tabla is uh, so intriguing. Like when I play with other, other percussionists, could be South American or African or Middle Eastern or uh, jazz or any style of drummer or or even for example a Carnatic musician they are all fascinated by the language that we have in tabla which no other percussion has like every drummer or every percussionist talks in terms of patterns uh, you know what the next question is going to be can you give us a bit of a demonstration of the language of tabla can you give us some <laughs> phrases because everyone when they listen to tabla and they listen to the way in which the balls are related or the the notes are related mm. to the the way in which we speak yeah. Uh, the phonetic sounds yeah. and the creation of those sounds on the tabla. It's its the most wonderful connection between yourself and the way in which you play the instrument. Can you give us a bit of a like uh, a, uh, a demonstration of how that would go? Uh, so, yeah, as you uh, said, uh, as you spoke about the recitation aspect of it, our tradition is an oral tradition, so we don't write music. So the teacher will recite something and the student has to listen to the sound and... Uh, they have to recite it like many number of times till it's like um, they get hold of it. So, um, for example, we have a language of tabla which is an abstract language. It doesn't mean anything, but there's an expression. So, uh, for example, if I want to say um, one two three one two three one two three four one two three four one two, for example, uh, we can say takita takita taka diga taka diga taka. Right. So you're substituting the notes the for, notes, for, the, for the numbers. For the numbers. And then we have uh, our tabla kaidas, for example. Mm. Like if I want to say, dhatita, 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 dhage tinna kinna. So I can go one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. I can analyze it like that also. Mm. But then we have this language, and this is like a very, the most oldest composition of tabla, which all tabla players in the world would know, that from Dili style. And then we do improvisations in the main composition, and then we always finish any composition with a um, composition called a tihai, which is you re, um, you repeat a phrase three times yep. to come on the first beat of the cycle, which is the sum, which right. is the most important beat in any cycle. So, for example, I'll just this is particular to to Indian classical music, isn't it? That tihai, the phrase repeated yeah, three, three times, times over, yeah. and and sometimes it's slightly changed or slightly changed in the last phrase. Yeah, or there has to be a significant ending. You cannot yeah. end wherever you feel like. So, because yeah. this is a classical tradition, it's like there are a lot of limitations. Yeah. So you're bound by a lot of things. You mm. cannot go outside move out of freely. the cycle. Yeah, yeah. So that's the but beauty that's of the beauty. it. Yeah, right, right. That's the beauty right. of it, because then you 
you develop this visualization well, it's improvised within a confined space isn't yeah, it yeah like so, you see, you have imagine you're singing a, a scale of four notes maybe right. hindol you know there are only four notes yeah so now it's even much harder to to improvise and visualize it yeah because when you have more yeah, number of notes you can make more combinations yeah, less possibility yeah, less of possibility. producing yeah So uh, yeah, so tabla is very fascinating. So, so let's hear chakrata. Let's just hear uh, one of the chakratas that you from your repertoire and. Okay, I'll recite one chakrata of Ustad Alaraga Khansab from the Punjab style. Din din ta ta ka din din na da ka din na na din din na na din din na ta ka din da din ta ka ta da ta ka ta din ta ka ta da ka ta ta ka din ka ta da ti ta ka ta da ti ta ka ta da ti da ka da din ta ka ta da ta ka ta din ta ka ta da ka ta ta ka din ka ta da ti ta ka ta da ti ta ka ta da ti da da din ta ka ta da ka ta din ta ka ta da ka ta ta ka din ka ta da ti ta ka ta da ti ta ka ta da ti da din that's fantastic i was really it's really interesting because i was uh, working with a guitarist actually on the on friday and we were in the recording studio and he was making uh, interesting phrases with da 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 but it's it's common isn't it? it's very very normal for a phrase like a long phrase like that to finish on da because that's that kind of the key point in yeah. tabla isn't it? where the the bass drum and the right drum come together in perfect unison the two notes the edge of the uh the the right drum and then the bass sound of the the left drum that da is very significant isn't it in tabla and the ending point or the sum point as you call yeah. it Hi, my name is Helfedeka. I have a monthly show from 4 to 6 p.m. on Saturdays where I play my favorite dance records. This is pretty loose. It spans all kinds of genres: grime, hip-hop, drum and bass, down tempo, warped electronica, kraut, Bollywood, acid disco. Everything is fair game, and you can generally expect to hear house, techno and electro toward the end of the show. A record or several records I've heard recently often inspire me to go into tune vortexes. For this show you are about to hear, I'm doing something a bit different. Andrew Weatherall was a pioneer, not only sonically, but also in his approach to music, which was genreless. He is undoubtedly an inspiration to me both artistically and personally, as well as to the show and how I approach it. In the wake of his sudden and tragic passing, I decided to do an extended tribute to him with tracks both familiar and lesser known. I hope you enjoy what you hear. Yo yo yo, I'm Helfedeka and for the next 2 hours I'll be playing my favorite dance records. This show features an extended tribute to Andrew Weatherall, a singular force in music who tragically passed away recently. Weatherall once extolled the following. Francis Bacon said, "There's something about the texture of paint on canvas that talks directly to the human soul. There's something about a needle on a record that does exactly the same thing." That first track was Beatrice Dillon Work Around 2 off her new album that came out this month It's Sick. I'll be playing a few tracks from it on this show before the weather all section. Up next, FFT Old. Following the deeply saddening and shocking news of producer, DJ, 
artist and omnipotent sonic pioneer Andrew Weatherall's sudden passing, it's hard to know where to begin when looking back on a career that spanned over 30 years. He also crisscrossed styles effortlessly, from dub and reggae to punk and rockabilly to the most glorious electro and techno. But this was no elitist fair. Weatherall was a cultivator of inclusivity on the dance floor and beyond, building a community of like-minded individuals around him. From slung-out chuggers to retina-searing electro, give the man any BPM and he'd find the perfect rhythm for it. His productions, DJ sets and radio shows transcended genres, a reflection of this same open-mindedness he maintained toward art of all types throughout the course of his 56 years. Records are like voices from the past, he shared in an interview, yet somehow, whether I'll always manage to be gazing or chugging, a word forever associated with the man, firmly into the future. Up first, a lesser-known B-side, one I wasn't even aware of until his death, but I've since fallen in love with. It's from Weatherall's Meek alias. The track, called A Glowing Trees, is anything but meek, however. It's a beautiful acid bubbler. Making Friends with the Invader, released in 2018 on a 12-inch with a track called Blue Bullet. And that has quite an interesting tale, taken straight from the Bandcamp page. Andrew invited a mate round to his studio to try out a Les Paul his friend was looking to buy. As it turns out, his mate was Ride and Oasis guitarist Andy Bell. Anyway, Andrew suggested he test the guitar out over a track he was working on, and the twang result is Making Friends with the Invader. Up next... Andrew Weatherall's remix of Hardaway Brothers' Mania Theme. the nine o'clock drop remix of Airstream follow through. Before that, Andrew Weatherall's remix of the Hardaway Brothers Mania theme. And again, the track before that was Making Friends with the Invader. Up next is um, a track called Unknown Plunderer, the Radioactive Man mix. It is from a 12-inch that just came out last week, um, a few days after his passing, backed with a tune called End Time Sound. He was as prolific in the weeks before his death as he was 30 years ago when he first started. It's one of several posthumous releases by Weatherall that are due out over the next few months. Once again, this is Unknown Plunderer.
My last track is perhaps some of Andrew's best-known work, a classic that transcended scenes and generations when it was first released and still continues to do so. It also features one of my favourite soul samples of all time. This is Andrew Weatherall's triumphant version of Primal Screams Loaded, R.I.P. to the Governor. Fail we may, sail we must. Just what is it that you want to do? We want to be free. We want to be free to, to do what we want to do. And we want to get loaded. And we want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. Well, wait, baby, let's go. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a party. Hi, I'm Josh McKenna and I present Gazetta Dello Soho, a sports magazine show on the Culture Channel. We broadcast fortnightly on the first and third Sunday of every month. We cover a wide variety of sport, uh, though we do have a tendency to lean towards Italian football, as you might have guessed from the name of the show. We usually manage to have an expert guest to give analysis and insight, and we also have some funny regular features, uh, one of which you'll hear in just a second. I'm always slightly reluctant to describe the show as comedy, so it seems a bit arrogant, Um, but other people have told me it's funny, and that's always a lovely thing to hear. So first of all, you'll hear the introduction to the show, which follows the same format every week, Uh, and then we'll have a clip from our roving reporter, Alan Bennett. I hope you enjoy. Benvenuto a Gazzetta dello Soho. It's me, it's Josh McKenna. Here for the next two hours on the Culture Channel with your fortnightly favourite sports show. Mm-hmm. As ever, I'll be joined by my erstwhile troubadour, Jim, later on, for a bit of his arse and his elbow and everything in between. We also have a wonderful guest this week, one of the nicest men in Britain, Samuel Piper, uh, who will be guiding us through the Six Nations. We've got a bit of football. We like a bit of football, don't we? Uh, A bit of controversy this week in British and European football. We'll be talking about the Man City Champions League conundrum. There's lots of other things besides rugball. Rugball? There's lots of other things besides rugball and footby. We've got the, the, the boxing. I was up at God knows what o'clock this morning watching my man. Tyson Fury for all these flaws and infidelities. Actually, I'm casting aspersions. He might not be. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll press on. And there's only one place to start, as I say, and that is with our good man. For the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world on HBO pay-per-view, ladies and gentlemen, from Mandalay Bay, Las Vegas, uh, let's get 
didn't he just... I don't know whether you were watching the fight, but it was superb. Uh, a, a great fight. It was billed, of course, as, as one of the greatest fights, you know, pre-billed as one of the greatest fights of all time. It lived up to its bill. It wasn't, you know, say, Arlie Frazier 71. It wasn't the thriller in Manila. It wasn't Tyson Holyfield, you know. It wasn't well, it wasn't sort of the, the, the epic clash of personalities, but it was something quite stupendous. It was, hey, that first fight. Whoa, my word. When we saw that, I thought, that's, that's it for the heavyweight boxing. It doesn't get better than that. And then last night... That was a man who came out there. Tyson came out all polished and and professional and fought a, a great fight. I was sitting in a room with four people who didn't particularly have much of an interest in boxing. Two people who swore uh, that they wouldn't be watching it, that it was a terrible, terrible thing. Just two men hitting each other. And, and 30 seconds in, they were going, Come on, Tyson! Come on, Tyson! Do you know what I mean? That's what it's about. That's what it's about. I loved it. What we also love, me and Jim have talked about it many times, is that that pre, the pre, the pre-fight, the build-up, the ram, bam, bam. Here is a bit of a snapshot of the war of words before the war of the fists. Ah. As a fighting man, you know when you win and lose fights. Simple as. He lost the fight fair and square. He will lose the fight again fair and square. This is the new beginning right here. This is unfinished business that I will finish. I'm going to go out there, I'm going to give him a boxing lesson, I'm going to knock him out. Like I told him, I'm the lion, I'm the king of the jungle. When I get him in there again, I'm going to make him feel the fury. And come February 27, we're going to rip his head off his body. Just watch out for the right hands, because you're going to sleep in two rounds. Two. Two rounds, he's going down. I had a dream, I keep having the same dream about round two, round two. I'm playing poker all the time, I keep getting dealt number two, number two. It's definitely a thing. He's getting knocked out in two rounds, 100%. Remember I said that. I'm going to knock you out there on ropes so you can really feel a WWE moment in real life. I'm glad you got a second job. You need it. When I beat Deontay Wilder, I've just beat another bare bum in the shower with a pair of boxing gloves on. Just another, another tick on the record. This is a major fight for you guys. You should be excited. This is the Wilder Fury 2 rematch, and it don't get no better than this. Two champions putting, putting their life on the line. Say some big words there. Big words. Uh, Deontay there giving it the, I'm glad you've got a second job. Casting back to the old, uh, we've talked about it before, getting in the ring with Braun Strowman of the WWE. Uh, we, we didn't like that. You know, we were saying, oh, he's, he's, lost, he's, he's lost his focus. Last night we saw a man there that was absolutely hot shit. He was so focused, so determined to win that fight, Tyson. We'll, we'll hear from him uh, in a number of pre, uh, pre-fight interviews that he did. Spoke exactly about his game plan. There was no shocks. If you'd listened to what he said before the fight, a lot of people were saying, oh, this is either a, a Deontay Wilder win in three rounds with a knockout, or it's a 12-rounder and Tyson wins it on points. And what happened was Tyson won it with a technical knockout. He stopped him. They threw the towel in. Wilder's corner threw the towel in. It was, what a spectacle. What a spectacle. I've realised I've just totally ruined the fight for you. We're going to talk about that later on, but I've just given you a nice quick synopsis there. Um, nevertheless, uh, like I said, great war of words before. You're always guaranteed that with Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, great, uh, great hype men for their own brand. Um, and like I said, we all thought, oh, you know, it'll be it'll be a 12-rounder, Tyson will win it on points. He said in all of his pre, pre-match interviews, he was pre-fight interviews rather, he was saying, oh, I need to take the fight to him. I need to stand up to him. I need to back him into a corner because he never wins when he's on the back foot. He's always going forward. That's how he wins these fights. And he did it to the letter. He did it to the letter. It was fantastic tactics. You know, again, Jim's given me a bit of stick before. He said, is there any tactics in boxing? Are you kidding me, Jim? 
I'll allow him to retort later on when he's here in person. He'll be joining us in about 20 minutes. Um, but I'll play a bit of music. I'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, Tyson's pre-match, uh, pre- I keep saying pre-match, pre-fight uh, stuff. Uh, a bit of his pre-match, I've done it again, a bit of his pre-fight rituals. Uh, he's got some interesting perversions, that particular gentleman. But we'll talk about that in a minute. A bit of music and I'll be back with you. Friday, March 13th, 2020. It was a morning of sweaty distress. I had awoken in the middle of the night to the impassioned chorus of urban foxes making the beast with two backs. It had taken quite a while to return to my previously peaceful slumbers, and upon doing so I was perturbed by unusual dreams. Despite this, and once I had mopped my dewy brow, I began my day with a sense of optimism. The bin men had been to collect the rubbish from the garden, and there's nothing quite so pleasing as the sight of an empty green plastic wheelie bin. Having previously seen said refuse vessel full to the brim, to see it then eagerly awaiting its next meal of grass cuttings lightened my heart. With a pot of tea gently steaming, I switched on the radio, and my rosy outlook was dampened. Football is cancelled, said the omnipotent voice, with a grave tone. Oh, bugger, thought I, whatever will become of my weekend. I had been due to see Manchester United play at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, a prospect of great entertainment. Though not the golden team of yesteryear, the current iteration of Manchester United has started to show promise. It's a curiosity, but an inevitable deduction nonetheless. Pop a perky Portuguese in the pot, and the soup tastes that much better. Bruno Fernandes may yet prove to be the best acquisition United have made since the signing of his compatriot, Cristiano Ronaldo. The heart can't help but flutter when thinking of that man in full flight. Sculpted like Hercules, all muscle and sinew. One could picture him on the silver screen, playing Jason, or at the very least one of his Argonauts. For all his talent, I place him in a category of bitter association. Not the man, but his given name. Once upon a time, Mother was very au fait with a Latin man of the same name. To give him his full Sunday moniker, Ronaldo Bastos. She met him at the town hall in Skipton in 1964 at a dinner dance, and they soon formed a fierce dance partnership, him having given her instruction in the tango and other Latino machinations. Incidentally, Mother's feet were seldom free of bunions in those days. I wonder now if these activities led her to the endless chiropody appointments that would blight her social undertakings later in life. But I digress. Mother and Ronaldo danced with great success in competitions as far afield as Jochenthwaite in Wharfdale, Ogle Barnby, and they caused eruptions in Peniston with a particularly rigid Pasadoble. The partnership was short-lived, however. Ronaldo Bastos turned out to be Ronald Baxter, 
It transpired he was a travelling salesman, on the run from a vacuum cleaner purchase gone sour. He fled from Mother's Embrace to London, after being recognised at a competition in Wetwang by a fellow Samba enthusiast. Some months later we read in the paper that he'd been apprehended in Soho, trying to sell counterfeit Lazy Susans to a legitimate Chinaman. It was a kick in the dim sums for Mother, but as with everything, and much like me today, she would keep on keeping on. Just another diamond day, just a blade of grass, just another pair of hay, how the horses pass. Thanks for listening to Soho Shortwave. If you want to hear more like this, you can subscribe to the podcast. Tune in live to the Musical Culture Channel at SohoRadioLondon.com or catch up on Mixcloud. This is a Soho Radio Productions podcast.